Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome to Top of the Morning on the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. Our conversation today will focus back in on the U.S. healthcare sector as we will cover everything from drug pricing reform to COVID-19 booster shots to sector positioning and more. Uh, Joining me here on the line for the conversation today, glad to welcome back to Top of the Morning, Eric Poniker, Healthcare Analyst Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office. So Eric, good morning. Welcome Welcome back, and thank you for joining us today. Oh, thanks, Dan. Good morning. Eric, I believe we last spoke. This is going back to late June. I know with healthcare, it does remain very fluid. A lot goes on, so there's a lot to update on. Maybe we can begin with the fact that the Chief Investment Office recently upgraded the U.S. healthcare sector to moderately preferred. So, Eric, can you walk us through the rationale behind that shift? Yeah, sure. And I think it was mostly driven uh, by... A macro view, it came from, uh, and it's, it's driven by the, uh, the strategy team uh, globally. And, you know, in essence, the, the view is that as the, um, as the global economy starts to moderate its pace, the defensive growth sectors, particularly healthcare in this case, look relatively more attractive to some of the um, sectors that are more driven by the, uh, the economic recovery. So that, that was the main thinking. Um, and that was really the rationale for the downgrade of healthcare back, I believe, in the spring of this year. Um, that's, you know, the time economic, uh, more economically, uh, cyclically driven sectors would outperform. And so that view has sort of come full circle now. And I think the view is it was the right time to be, um, be recommending something that was somewhat more defensive yet still uh, with some growth orientation and healthcare sort of fits that bill quite well. Okay, so now that we have a better understanding of the allocation shift, maybe we can dive into a few topics as it relates to healthcare on the minds of our clients, investors, maybe beginning with drug pricing reform, and this is something else we've spoken about previously. What are the prospects for any notable reform to take shape near to medium term, Eric? Yeah, I think by the end of the year, there is a a better than 50-50 probability that we'll see some kind of drug pricing legislation emerge within the larger budget reconciliation package uh, package that the Democrats are pushing in Congress. Um, you know, timing for that broader bill, I, I believe, is is somewhere in the fourth quarter to, to have it uh, finalized. And you know, healthcare is a big part of what the Democrats are are looking to um, you know to impact, particularly uh, expanding healthcare coverage. And with that will come a requirement, uh, for some kind of healthcare pay for to offset the, uh, the expanded coverage. Um, so I think it's, as I said, I think it's better than 50-50 that we'll get something by the end of the year. I think it'll take some time and won't be until much closer to the end of the year before we see the details of what will emerge broadly on healthcare, but specifically on drug pricing. Um, my, that tells me that it's likely to be a more moderate proposal than what we're initially seeing from uh, from Democratic, uh, from the House, certainly, and from uh, Bernie Sanders in the Senate. Those are much more aggressive drug pricing policies that, frankly, I don't think can get through the Democratic Senate uh, and, and probably not the Democratic House either. Um, there are 50 votes, uh, Democratic votes in the Senate. All 50 need to support a budget reconciliation bill. And there are a number, number of Democratic senators from uh, what I would call blue pharma states that have a lot of pharma jobs, most notably New Jersey, California, Massachusetts, New York, Michigan, Illinois, 
Uh, Indiana was uh, which fall into a you know, farmer state that doesn't have Democratic Senate votes. But as you can see from all those other states, there are uh, there are a lot of senators that have a lot of farmer jobs um, in their in their states. And I think ultimately we're going to see enough of a moderate resistance to the more aggressive proposals that are out there. And I think a moderate bill, similar to what is emerging out of the Senate Finance Committee, um, a bipartisan proposal by Senator Menendez, a Democrat from New Jersey, not surprisingly, uh, and Republican Senator Cassidy from Louisiana, who is a physician. That bill tracks very closely to the um, Wyden-Brassley bill that came out of the Senate Finance Committee in 2019 that had a lot of input and basically support for the farm industry. Uh, I suspect that something close to that is more likely to be what ultimately gets through, um, given the narrowness of the, the votes in both the Senate and the House. And again, all the um, all the Democrats that ultimately have a lot of pharma uh, influence and uh, and jobs in their states. So I, I do think that uh, if we if we did get that kind of clarity by the end of the year, that would lift a pretty significant overhang from the pharmaceutical stocks. And that overhang has really been in place for more than five years now because, the, you know, the potential impact if you had a more onerous drug pricing plan could be quite negative. Uh, but as I said, I think that is very unlikely and that what we are likely to get is a moderate bill that should be perceived well and certainly has the input of pharma in it at this point. But it will take time before we see that. And as I said, I don't think we'll see the details of that till the end of this year. And in the meantime, we're going to see headlines and we're already starting to see advertisements uh, on both sides of the issue from pharma and from more progressive groups that really want to um, to have a, a more a stronger, more aggressive drug pricing um, component to the legislation. So I think the headlines will impact sentiment to some degree, but ultimately, as I said, I think we'll uh, hopefully end up with something that's moderate and, and will be in essence, the removal of a pretty significant risk that's been weighing on the industry for a number of years. That's a very interesting consideration, how you mentioned the healthcare pharma presence in some of these states. So thank you, Eric, for sharing with us your expectations. A lot to keep an eye on here. Outside of D.C., what else, Eric, do you see as being risks to the group near to medium term? Yeah, I think the biggest uncertainty to the group are the cross-currents uh, from COVID. And that's really been impacting the group for the last year and a half. Uh, you have some you, you have had we have had some significant beneficiaries from COVID, uh, particularly the COVID diagnostic test plays last year and then the beginning of this year, and also through the vaccine plays. Uh, and uh, at the same time, we've had utilization that's been under pressure because people haven't been able to go see their physicians, and that's impacted the medical device space. Uh, as well as the hospital space. And, you know, I think then the health insurers are sort of caught, particularly in these cross currents, because they've benefited from people not being able to see their doctors over the last year, deferring procedures, yet they also have to pay for a lot of the um, COVID-related expenses. And most importantly, they have the uncertainty of what will healthcare demand look like as we come out of COVID. Uh, there are a number of variables that, frankly, health insurers and the broader healthcare economy really hasn't ever faced before coming out of this kind of pandemic. And I think that uncertainty is weighing, uh, weighing broadly on the sector because it's just hard to forecast um, volumes, revenue, and earnings for the next two to four quarters. And I think you're seeing a fair amount of conservatism from most of the, uh, most of the management teams. I think the market 
understands that and for the most part hasn't penalized uh, most of the management teams and stocks for, for their conservative conservatism and their guidance. But that uncertainty um, could lend itself easily to earning surprises, upside and downside, uh, and disappointments for the next couple of quarters. So I think that's really the main risk. Uh, we're really just in uncharted territory, and we don't know what the long-term impact uh, on healthcare demand will be. From, from this kind of a pandemic. Uh, and that's going to take some time to play out. And I, frankly, I don't think the companies, none of them have ever been in this situation. I don't think they know. And that will probably lead to ongoing conservatism in their commentary and their guidance for the next couple of quarters. To your point, the pandemic, COVID-19, a lot of unknowns as these variants uh, surface, present themselves. We've been all living with the realities of the Delta variant uh, most recently. And I know when we last spoke, we talked about vaccination rates. Millions of Americans have either been fully vaccinated or have at least received one dose. But in recent weeks, we've been hearing more about these booster shots. So, Eric, what's currently being recommended and what's being developed to combat these variants? Yeah, so uh, in terms of booster shots, the recommendation from CDC, uh, and this is pending a review by FDA, but CDC has basically, and the Biden administration has basically mapped out the, the time frame, is that starting September 20th, uh, individuals at the eight-month anniversary of their second uh, vaccine, this is assuming the, the mRNA vaccines from Pfizer-BioNTech and Moderna, that they would then get a booster shot. Um, unclear exactly what the timing will be for a potential booster on the, the J&J shot. Um, but so you know, we will start to see, and we've already started seeing people you know, on their own getting a third shot. Um, but the recommendation is eight months post one second shot. And, and that will mean that the most um, vulnerable populations, nursing homes, immunocompromised patients, healthcare workers, will be getting their booster shots first, just as they got their initial vaccines first, and then that will roll through uh, with the rest of the population. Although I'm not sure there will be restrictions on anyone going and getting a third shot if they want one. Uh, so this is simply the recommendation from the CDC. There's ample supply of vaccine in the market, so I, I don't think uh, I think people can get a booster as soon as they want, um, although I would suggest they speak to their doctor and follow the CDC advice because it is based to some extent on analysis of data from clinical, the clinical trials and when the antibodies um, in uh, in those earliest patients' dose um, start waning. Uh, but that's the recommendation. So far, it could be subject to change, but uh, you know, that's, at least for now, what we know on, on the booster rollout plan. Uh, in terms of, of um, combating variants, uh, all of the vaccine companies are looking at Boosters slash next generation vaccines that would be targeted towards the Delta variant or towards the Delta variant and some of the other variants that already emerged. Uh, there's a bit of a divergence between Pfizer, BioNTech, and Moderna in terms of what their boosters would be targeting. Uh, but I, I think the, the, the main uh, view is the, the original vaccines still are quite effective against Delta and against the variants that we've seen to date, the boosters might ultimately be um, more focused on those variants or encompassing a broad array of variants and a multivalent approach to um, to vaccines, which is common for vaccines um, outside of COVID. Um, 
so I, you know, I, I think the reality also is the, the virus evolved and we're, to some extent, everyone is playing catch up to figure out what type of, um, booster or adapted, uh, uh, evolved vaccine is best suited against future variants. So I think that will be a continue, continuing, um, uh, of dynamic going forward. Well, Eric, thank you for the clarity on the booster rollout plan. I know this has been a big point of interest as of late, and it is encouraging to hear how the private sector is working on solutions to combat these variants as they present themselves. So thank you for that, Eric. Maybe as a closing point, uh, turning back to positioning within the U.S. healthcare sector, uh, what are you currently recommending? What are your preferred subsectors within? So uh, we still recommend uh, medical devices and life sciences tools as our two most preferred subsectors, and uh, we're still neutral on pharmaceuticals, biotechnology, and on healthcare services. And the rationale really hasn't changed since uh, since um, we came out and launched on on these a year ago, uh, almost a year ago. Yeah, the, the best and most visible growth uh, in healthcare is our medical devices and the life sciences tools companies. Um, the valuations for both of those sectors obviously reflect that visibility, that growth, that overall lack of risk from any kind of government reform in the U.S. or globally, uh, and, and that really hasn't changed. And in terms of pharmaceutical biotechnology, the, the drug pricing uncertainty is still an overhang. I, I am more optimistic that we're closer to resolution, um, but I think we're still far enough away that it merits you know, a neutral view on, on that space. And again, with healthcare services, which for, for, um, our coverage is, is the, the health insurers, managed care companies. Again, that uncertainty in terms of the medical, underlying medical cost trends during and coming out of, uh, of a pandemic, I think this merits a neutral view. Uh, the valuations are, are, you know, are sort of reasonable for that group, but I, but I think again, there's enough uncertainty that the management teams are probably going to remain cautious for the next few quarters. So that's that's uh, where we stand in terms of the four subsectors that, that we define and, and our rating. Well, Eric, it was very nice catching up with you here on top of the morning today. It was helpful to hear updates on drug pricing reform, the COVID-19, a booster shot rollout plan, a lot there that we can follow up on. Also helpful to hear about CIOs, current thinking when it comes to a positioning within the healthcare space. So look forward to picking the conversation back up again with you soon, Eric, though. Thank you again for your time and insights today. Well, thanks, Dan. Have a good day. Likewise. Thank you, Eric. And again, today we've been joined by Eric Potiker, Healthcare Analyst Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office. So as a reminder to our clients and our listeners, the UBS Chief Investment Office does author a variety of publications and blogs that touch on timely market developments, asset classes, and portfolio allocation. These resources can all be located on UBS.com forward slash CIO. Now that includes the publication which Eric has been making reference to during our conversation today, the U.S. Healthcare Equity Preference List Update as of August 24th. Again, that's available for you now up on UBS.com forward slash CIO. Though, of course, if you are a client of UBS, uh, simply reach out to your financial advisor if you would like to receive a copy of the publication directly. Top of the Morning is part of the UBS Market Moves podcast channel, which is available where podcasts are found, including on iTunes, 
iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Pandora. Visit UBS.com forward slash studios to view the entire podcast offering, as well as the new UBS trending video series. From UBS Studios, I'm Dan Cassidy. Thank you for joining us. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliate, UBS. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient and is published for informational purposes only. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients globally, UBS AG and its subsidiaries offer both investment advisory services and brokerage services. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. In the USA, UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG and a member of FINRA SIPC. For information, please visit our website at UBS.com forward slash working with us. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.